0: So as we get started, I recall many moons ago being on a mission trip to Quebec City. Now, if you've ever been to Quebec City, it is probably the prettiest place in the world that I've ever been to. I haven't been to all the pretty places in the world, but that is definitely the prettiest place I've ever been to. But one of the things we did is we did an outreach. And we went down to the boardwalk and we decided we tried to go down and share the gospel with people. And as we got down there, I was still young in the faith and very timid of what am I going to say and how am I going to share the faith with somebody. Uh, as I'm sitting there going, OK, who do I go share with? Up walks literally a man dressed like the devil, like like the character of the devil. He had little horns on, the tail, the red suit on, the pitchfork. And I thought, well, it's not more obvious than that. <laughs> Who am I going to share with it? There he is. So I went over to engage him and just started some small talk with him, talking about life, whatever. And as I'm talking with him, a crowd starts surrounding us because it's weird, a guy carrying a Bible and the devil standing face to face. So a crowd forms around us and we're talking. But once I got to the point of Christ in the conversation, one gentleman in the crowd starts screaming at me. He started yelling at the top of his voice, You Christians are all alike. You guys are haters and you it just went off. To the point where the devil then turned to this man and said, This guy's been nothing but kind to me. Why are you yelling at him? Which is an interesting picture if you can see this one playing out. Yet this man in the crowd continued to berate me and continued to yell and to be angry and trying to get everybody around him on his side. Now I ask you, why when I was just talking to the devil was everything fine until the name of Christ came up? What happened when the name of Christ showed up? Why the anger? Why the hostility? And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You could be talking small talk, talk about the weather, talk about the Rams beating the Cowboys last night. Everything's fine. Did I mention the Rams beat the Cowboys last night? Anyway, um, everything is fine. Everything is good and and it's moving forward. But then once you bring up the name of Jesus, something happens. And something happens and it's usually, it's on either side of of the pole, either this side or this side. Either people will resonate with it well, people become very defensive, and some become very, very aggressive. This morning, we're going to look at a message called, The One Who Divides. The One Who Divides. So if you're taking out this morning, the title of the sermon this morning is The One Who Divides, and we'll be back in the study of John this morning, John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52, and we're going to see this unfold, that Christ, when Christ is present, Christ is spoken of, that division occurs. So if you would open up your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 7. I'm going to read through our passage this morning. It's verse 40 through 52. We start in verse 40. It says, when they heard these things, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this passage from the Gospel of of John, closing up chapter 7, Father, we pray that you would teach us from your Holy Scriptures, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, That you would give us the confidence of what it looks like to be in Christ. And how that will stir up the world around us. Father, that we wouldn't be shaken. But God, we would be encouraged. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. so in our passage, where we start off, we see in verse 40, when they heard these words. Now, if you haven't been studying through John with us, or you can't remember what happened before, what words are they talking about? So go back to verses 37 and 38. Just back a couple verses in your Bible. It's the last day of the feast. It says, The great day Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He says, Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The context, it's the last day of the Feast of Booths. Jesus stands up and gives this glorious invitation. If you are thirsty, if your soul is thirsty, come to me, that you would be satisfied for all eternity. And he gives this invitation. They hear this, and the audience, the people in the crowd, are going to respond. There's going to be a response to what they heard. Just as today, as you hear these things, there's going to be a response. Certain things are going to go into your ears, into your brain, affect your heart, and there's going to be a response, one way or another. That's what we're going to see this morning with this crowd. Back in verse 40 again, they heard these things, and some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Now you might remember back in chapter 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000. Some people there also responded the same way. This must be the prophet, the one who is to come. Who else could do signs like this? We know what they believe from Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, says Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. This is who they're waiting for. They're waiting for this prophet to come. Peter, when he's preaching in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 19, Peter says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Look at verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. Here they are in the crowd and some say, this must be the prophet. But some misunderstood the prophet to be the one who would point to the Messiah, the one who would point to the Christ, like the Elijah that should come back like John the Baptist who came in that role. These were those that were sympathizers Say, hey, this man is definitely sent by God. We can see that. But they're not necessarily believers. We also see if you look at verse 41, it says, others said this is the Christ. Now, there's a difference between those two. This man's sent by God. There's, there's something special about this guy. He's a prophet. And for others to say, no, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. A true confession. This crowd is already mixed. Some said, well, it's got to be somebody from God. Others say, no, this is the Messiah. But there's more in this crowd. Follow with me, verse 41. Some in the crowd said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Yeah, listen to what they're saying. Do you know it's possible to be right and wrong at the same time? That doesn't make sense, right? How is it possible to be right and wrong? You know, on the surface, they were completely right. Christ does come from the offspring of David. And Christ does come from Bethlehem. We know that from Micah chapter 5, verse 2: that the Christ would come from Bethlehem. But they're also absolutely wrong as well their question here in this verse is the christ to come from galilee it's just a way to to push away the claims of christ to dismiss the claims of christ notice they didn't investigate where he actually came from they just know he was raised in galilee and just go with that excuse it's the easiest excuse they can come up to reject their only hope this is going to start sounding familiar to some of us i got a question for you where was christ born Anybody? Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem, just like the scriptures declared. But the convenient truth is well, he was raised in Galilee. He's a Galilean. And let's decline to even worry about looking into that anymore. There's an opposition to Christ. Many of you know this. You go out and try to tell someone about Christ, and there's an immediate opposition. They're saying anything they can in opposition to the claims of Christ. They don't know the facts, nor have they spent any time investigating the facts or trying to ascertain them. They don't really know the truth, but they just throw an excuse out there. You know, I hear it all the time. People say things like, you know, the Bible can't be trusted. It's been translated so many times. You know, have you ever heard someone say something like that? Perhaps you've said that once in your life. You know, I actually said that once as a very young man. I was dead in my sins and trespasses and someone asked me, would you like to come to a Bible study? <laughs> what was my dismissal? The Bible. The Bible has been translated so many times no one could trust it. Do you know how much investigation I had done into the Bible? Nothing. And this person actually said to me, wow, you must have actually researched the Bible a lot to come to that conclusion. To which in my arrogance I was like, Be gone. Because I couldn't answer that rightly. I hadn't done any investigation. It was my excuse to push it off. I've heard others say Jesus didn't truly die on the cross. He was only sleeping. Really? How much investigation have you done into that one? History would tell us he died on the cross. Josephus would record this. How about this one? You're telling me that Jesus declared himself to be God? Do you know that Scripture never declares him to be God? That Jesus never said that he was God? people say that they'll say it emphatically Do you know what they've never searched the scriptures they've never looked to ascertain the truth they say things that are absolutely foolishness to push away the truth the superficial list of excuses goes on and on but guess what they're just that they're excuses they're excuses to remain in one's sins Their excuses not to turn to God. Their excuses to continue living in darkness. Their excuses to comfort their own conscience. But notice in our text, if you look down to verse 42, some of these people actually knew something about Scripture as well. These same people knew Scripture. And they still remained in darkness. Verse 42, they said, Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? Well, yes, it does. And yes, he did. They actually knew that. We read in Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, it says, As you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Then in Psalm 132, verses 10 and 11, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And there's many other passages. If we had time, we would go through many others that speak of this—that Messiah would come from the line of David. Now, how many of you starting off your Bible reading? Those of you who joined us this year in the one-year Bible start off in Matthew one and went, "Oh man, there's a big genealogy here. I don't know how to read these people's names. I don't know what it's saying." And actually, if you turn over to Luke chapter three, you get another one of those. You're like, "Why is that even here?" we for multiple reasons, but one thing will point you in that lineage. Guess who's there? David. David, to point people to Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the one that you have waited for. Then in 43, we see that the central point of our text this morning, verse 43, John 7, 43, it says, So there was a division among the people over him. They were all fine enjoying the festivities, the feasts, the booths, going out, doing what they would do for those days. But when Christ comes, now there's division. This was division. It was not a quiet one. It was not a small one. It was far and wide. And just keep you hanging right there. We'll come back later and touch upon it. We'll look at it again. But so far in this crowd, who you have out in this crowd is you have people who say, This is definitely a special man. There's something special about him. He's definitely sent by God. You have others who think this is surely the Christ. And then you have others who think there's nothing significant about him. We shouldn't even consider this man. But that's not all that's in the crowd. We'll read that there's actually those who are very hostile towards Christ as well. Keep following with me through the text. Verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The question is, arrest him for what? I mean, what had he really done that would warrant being arrested? They started to begin to be upset with him when he healed a man on the Sabbath, and then it flowed out from that. But do you think that's really the core of it? Do you think that's really why they want to arrest him. Do you think that's really why they were out to kill him? It's much deeper than that. The bottom line is that darkness hates the light. Bottom line is darkness hates the light. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the one that came to save sinners. Yet the world hates him because their works are evil. That's what Jesus said. So they hate me because their works are evil. But interestingly enough, even though they have this plan, this plot to go and arrest him, it says they could not lay a hand on him. Why is that? Because God is in control of all things. And God's timeline had not unfolded yet. He reigns and he rules over all things. But not only did the people in the crowd, some in the crowd want to arrest him, we also read in our text, but so did the religious leaders. Those who would know the scriptures the best. They're the ones, they wanted him. Flip back in your Bible, back to verse 31. John chapter 7, verse 31. John chapter 7, verse 31, verse 32, we read that many of the people believed in Jesus. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I mean, this has got to be him. This is the Christ. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. What do you think about this? These are the religious leaders waiting for the Messiah. If these things are true that we're hearing, send him that we might know him too. That's not the response. Go and arrest him. That we might interrogate and that we might kill him. We pick up right back where those officers come back into play in verse 45 and 46. We see that the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. How is it, if you were here this morning and you are a Christian, how is it that when you heard the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that somehow those words were like any other words you ever heard? You've heard of Buddha. You've heard of Hare Krishna. You've heard of Muhammad. You've heard of all these others. But when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, something was different. Because the Holy Spirit had done something to you. He's allowed you to receive a truth that everybody else is blinded to. He's opened your eyes, unveiled you to this truth. They are now hearing something. They say, there's nothing like it. We have heard this man speak, and he speaks like no other. Nowhere in here have they had their eyes open. But they're hearing a man speak as he would have before, and he will afterwards with authority. A man that speaks like no other. Again, following up in our text, verse 47 says, the Pharisees answered them, these officers, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Okay, so what's happening? You've got these religious leaders and they find out these officers are saying good things about the price. This man is speaking like no other. And how do they respond? By berating them. By insulting them. They say, have you also been deceived? What are they inferring? You're wrong. You're a fool. You're like those others in the crowd who believe. What a fool you are. He goes, look at us, they say the Pharisees. Have any of us, the authorities, have we believed in him? So look at us. We know the truth. We're not deceived. We know he's not the Christ. How foolish you are not to agree with us. These are straight bullies. It's not a bully. Is. Somebody's coming and attacking and degrading and demeaning and trying to make you feel, oh man, I must feel ashamed of what I believe and what I know and what I've said. And they continue to come at them. Then we have this final one in verse 50 and 52. We see a man named Nicodemus. Some of you might remember Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. It says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, being the Pharisees, he said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied to him, he was one of them. Verse 52, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So now they're accusing him, one, of being associated with the Galileans, the unsophisticated, the uneducated ones, those who live out in the sticks. And they also accuse him of not knowing his scriptures. They're attacking him. Things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. People come at us the same exact way. Now here we have Nicodemus. We have no evidence right here that by Nicodemus standing up for Christ, that he's actually a genuine believer. We have no evidence of that right here. But he's definitely a sympathizer. He's so, definitely somebody that wanted Jesus at night that we know of to seek and say, Man, what is it about you? Jesus said, Look, you got to be born again. It's not all about this head knowledge, but you must be born again. Nicodemus, we know, believed that Christ was special. And he was a sympathizer enough to open his mouth and say something to defend Christ. But like the officers, he too gets scorned by his peers. Are you from Galilee too? Are you so stupid? You know, it's out of their blinding pride they shoot the most demeaning insults at one of their own peers, calling him the foolish ones. And they say, search and see that none of the prophets arise from Galilee. You know, it's pretty funny they say this. He was actually the leader of the bunch. He was the one that would teach them. And they're accusing him of not knowing the Scriptures. And the funny thing is, you guys heard of Jonah? Do you know where he came from? Galilee. And they're like, you don't even know. None of the prophets come from Galilee. They're so upset, so angry, they're just saying foolishness to push back against Christ. So Nicodemus definitely appears to have some type of belief there's no evidence here that it's a saving belief, but he submits to the facts. This man is special. This man is from God. You know the scary thing is there's many people today that are in the same position. Many people in churches today that have the same type of belief. They believe in the facts. They believe in that they've, they've heard this Gospel for a long period of time. And maybe that's you this morning. You've heard the Gospel for a long period of time. You've understood the Gospel. You could even articulate the Gospel to others. And you don't deny that the Scriptures are truth. You agree that they're God's Word. You do not deny that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that. You do not deny that the crucifixion of Christ. Or you do not deny that he was crucified and raised on the third day? You believe those things? You even understand the meaning for your life from those? You say, I know that Jesus died for me. I know he paid the penalty for my sins. I know that he conquered sin and death. And that by believing in him, I can have eternal life. And all this is true, but just like this, man, perhaps you have not come to the invitation that Jesus gave to come and drink come. You've never submitted yourself to Him as Lord and a Savior. You've never determined to follow Him. And Church, this is terribly tragic. Now we see Nicodemus once again later on after Jesus is crucified. But at this point where we see him doing, of just saying something is, I agree with the facts. I agree with the facts of what's going on. And when they come at him and, and talk back to him, he doesn't say another word. He's like, that was enough. I said something, but he knows facts, and there are people today, possibly here this morning, that know the facts and agree to the facts. They have all this truth stored up in their head, but their heart is still rebellious and won't submit. Now today could be the day that you receive Christ as Lord and Savior. You can actually do that now. You can turn to Him now. He must be Lord. He must be Lord and Savior that he would be the greatest treasure. May he be yours today. But we also have to remember as that goes out and that truth is there and it holds in the hinge of do I just know facts about him or do I know him? I bet yet does he know me. We also must remember that while Jesus is the prince of peace and has come to reconcile sinners back to the father, that he also has come to be the one who divides. He's the one who divides. Remember that verse 43 that I told you we'd come back to? Verse 43 says there was division among the people over him. When you think of Jesus, oftentimes the thoughts of, you know, some gentle man who would only say things to please people's ears, but we've covered lots of times where Jesus speaks truth and at times offends people, and at times even accuses people of being and Jesus speaks of himself. We read in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 34. He says something that for many of us, like, what, what? The Prince of Peace? Well, wait, what's he saying here? Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 34, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Well, how is that for a gospel pitch? How's that about Jesus? Hey, this Christ, he's come, and he's going to come, and it's going to be division. And that's not an isolated passage. We read again in Luke chapter 12, picking up verse 51. It says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Guess what, church? Darkness and light don't mix. They don't mix. When Christ draws someone out of darkness and into his glorious light, those in darkness hate it. They hate it. What do you think about your own experience? Have you experienced this? when God regenerated you and filled you with his Holy Spirit and made you light, have you experienced this? Maybe in your marriage? Maybe with your parents? Maybe with your children? Maybe with your co-workers? Your friends? That all of a sudden something has radically changed in you and others taken offense by it. And instead of listening to the true claims of what has happened, they resent you for it and they attack you. And they belittle you. And they throw contempt at you. So, why does Jesus cause division? Why can I be in Quebec City sharing with a guy dressed as the devil and everything's fine until I bring up the name of Jesus? Why does he cause division? Why is it out of every person of history that the name that gets blasphemed is the name of Jesus Christ when someone wants to swear? Why is it the name of Jesus that causes division? Well, one reason is because it is truth. And truth divides. Truth divides. know, we live in a postmodern age where people say there's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as an absolute truth. And they'll say, you know what, I'm glad that's true for you. It's just not true for me. And they don't believe in this absolute truth anymore. Church, you know well, truth is truth. And truth applies to all people. And that's why Christ is so divisive. When Jesus says something like what he said in John chapter 14, verse 6, and he says, I am a way? No. He says, I am the way. And he says, I am a truth? No. I am the truth. And I am a life? No, I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. Peter proclaims in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Christ and Christ alone. Why is there division? Because people hate the light. They love the darkness. Church, there are not many ways to God. I don't care who says it on what television program they say it on. There's not many ways to God. Jesus made it very clear there is one way, and it's through him, and it's through faith in him. That's it. But this exclusivity causes strife. Think about how the Bible paints and declares the unbeliever. The unbeliever, the Bible says, is dead in their trespasses and sins. The unbeliever is following the course of this world. The unbeliever is following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. The spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. The unbeliever is living in the passions of their own flesh. They're carrying out the desires of their body and their mind. And the scripture saying, by nature, they're children of wrath. That's what scripture declares about the unbeliever. Jesus said, their father is the devil. They love darkness. And they hate those who would expose evil deeds those who would shine as the light. You ever been around somebody and they say a a curse word and they say, oh, I'm sorry, pardon my French. It's not French. But somehow the light has exposed that and they feel convicted about it. So I have a question for you this morning, Christian. How is the world going to respond to you? How is the world going to respond to you? What we see in Scripture and what we experience is the world is going to hate you. The world's going to hate you. They're going to reject you. They're going to despise you. They're going to do to you just like they did to our Lord Jesus. Just like they did to Jesus. You know, this division is between believers and unbelievers. And why does it come? Because we're on opposite grounds. Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 lists the opposite grounds. He said it on one side. For the believer, you have righteousness. And for the unbeliever, you have lawlessness. For the believer, there's light. And for the unbeliever, there's darkness. For the believer, there's the temple of God. For the unbeliever, there's temple of idols. For the believer, there's Christ. And for the unbeliever, there's the devil. It's opposite grounds. There's no common ground between any believer and unbeliever. There's nothing there that's alike. And you go, oh, I know that verse about not being unequally yoked. And you apply it only to marriage. Well, think about this. If the Bible paints us this opposite, a believer and an unbeliever, why would anybody even consider marrying an unbeliever? They come from different worlds. They have different pursuits, different passions, different treasure. This one treasures Christ. This one treasures the world and the things of the world. There's no common ground. One is alive in Christ. The other one is dead in sin. One is living for the glory of God. The other is living for their own glory. Darkness hates the light. The world hates Christ. Christian, know this. You will be accused of being narrow-minded. You will be accused of that. You will be accused of being a bigot. A bigot. You'll be accused of being self-righteous. You'll be accused of being arrogant. You'll be accused of being unintelligent. You'll be labeled all sorts of things. But know this, just as they treated Christ, so they will also treat you. For the Christian, we don't view this as a negative side effect of knowing Christ of woe is me, I'm being called names. We don't see it that way. We view it as a badge of honor. We see it that we are now identified with Christ. That is why the world hates me, because they hate Christ. And if Christ is in me, they're only treating me the same way they treated him. The flip side is true. If the world only loves me and has no offense at me, well, maybe because they don't see any Christ in me. to be identified with Christ. Christian, do not get discouraged when your family attacks you on the account of Christ. It is Him whom they hate. And because you're identified with Him, now they hate you. Do not get disheartened when the world demeans you on behalf of Christ. Darkness hates light and Christ has shined in you. You're now a new creation in Christ Jesus. You now are the light of the world. You now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Sit and stop for a second on that. No longer a temple of idols, but a temple of God. Scripture says your your citizenship now, it's now in heaven. Your citizenship is now recorded in heaven. That though you be in this world, you're no longer part of this world. That you are Christ. You are His for all eternity. That He is your greatest treasure. Church, do not be discouraged. Do not be disheartened when you see the division over Christ, but stand firm and glory that you are identified with Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for work that you have done through christ that as we look in this passage in john chapter 7 that jesus would say come to me all you who thirst god we see examples of those who would see him as definitely a special man of a man sent by god yet know the facts about him but not receive him as lord and savior father i pray this morning in this place that you would draw any man or woman unto yourself that perhaps they have the head knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done, but this morning he would be their treasure, that they would submit to him as Lord and Savior. Father, for the rest of us who identify ourselves as Christians, as those who are in Christ, and Lord, we have experienced the attack, the onslaught of the world that opposes anything of light. Father, I pray this morning that we would stand firm in knowing that we are children of yours. That we are Christ, that it is your light that shines in us, that the world that would hate us is because they first hated you. God may we rejoice in being identifying, being able to be identified with Christ. To you be all the honor, glory, forever and ever in Jesus' name.